The Vatican financial scandal trial continues in Rome, while the Vatican seems to be at odds with the German synodal way. With reaction and analysis of this and much more, canon lawyer and papal posse member, Father Gerald Murray. Composer and arranger Kevin Koska talks about the fantastic arrangements he's created and the ones he created for my Christmas Merry and Bright album. And what could be more joyful this season than an expectant family welcoming a new child? Children's author Courtney Sebring brings her new pro-life picture book, A Little Spark of Life, to us. The World Over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me an X post. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover. Let's get right to it. Father, I want to move on to this ongoing and seemingly endless Vatican financial trial. Now in its third year, Uh, it all stems from a deal between the Vatican and an investment manager who sold the Secretariat of State, a London building uh, where the Vatican lost over 100 million euros. Eventually, several Kuril officials were swept up in indictments and numerous financial crimes, including Cardinal Angelo Becciu, essentially the Pope's chief of staff. Now, Father, as this case drags on and on, does anyone even remember what's at stake here? I mean, Cardinal Becciu maintains his innocence. Prosecutors uh, have as yet not not been able to prove he benefited financially from the shady deals. Um, is this criminal activity, gross incompetence on part of the secretariat or both? And what do you make of the trial? Well, as an American, you look at the uh, system of justice that is used. And this is, of course, this is a trial being conducted by Vatican City State. So it is, uh, it's not the Holy See as a religious entity. It's the Vatican City State, which is you know, the governing uh, entity for that territory. Now, mm-hmm. in, in America, when you have a trial that's complex, you don't take a month-long recess, uh, as they seem to do in Italy. Uh, the Vatican system follows Italian justice, so they'll do hearings, and they take a recess for a few weeks or a month, and they'll come back, do more hearings. So, uh, sad to say, with that, you get a three-year-long trial. Uh, for most people, it, they can't follow the arguments because they forgot where they started. I will say this. I am very sympathetic to the prosecution based on what I've read, uh, because I think the Vatican was deceived by some of the people who were involved in uh, advising it and then also in the management side. And if it wasn't, uh, you know, a matter of conspiring to commit a crime, certainly negligence and rash actions, uh, which resulted in harm, are also punishable in law. So um, I'm waiting to see what the decision, but Again, this is, you know, in the modern world, uh, there's no reason that we can't speed up trials and not allow this thing to go on and on and on. But, you know, the Italian uh, system of justice has a different view of how things should proceed, and they give more time uh, in between actual Mm. court sessions than we do in the U.S., well, well, Father, there's not only the, uh, you know, the expansive uh, drag-on trials that happen in Italy. 
lay on top of that the Vatican intrusions into this process. I mean, there have been some very odd interventions along the way by Pope Francis himself. Can you speak to those and how that might queer this case altogether? Well, this has to do with the nature of the Holy See, which is essentially a monarchy. Uh, there is not a separation of powers as we have in an elective uh, democracy such as the United States, a republican form of government. So the, you know, the chief executive is the pope, he's also the chief judge, and he's the chief legislator. So what happens is uh, the legislation in place uh, and then the uh, implementing regulations, he can change them at will uh, as the process is unfolding. The question that people have, is that fair to do that? And I would say it's fair if it reg uh, regulates or remedies uh, a lacuna or an absence in the law or something that is manifestly uh, out of not just or doesn't favor the equal administration of justice. So, of course, mm -hmm. to most people in the secular world, uh, when a trial starts, um, you can't change the rules of how the trial is conducted, and that's understandable. Um, but in this case, the pope has made a few interventions along the way. Now, of course, defense attorneys are going to argue, as they have, this vitiates the whole process, uh, but that's not how it works uh, in the Holy See administration of justice. Uh, Father, last week uh, there was the big story of Cardinal Raymond Burke losing his Vatican residence and his pension, seemingly as a punishment for his uh, outspoken criticism of Pope Francis's policies or uh, the way in which the, the teachings of Pope Francis have been disseminated. So far, there's no indication that this decision has or will be reversed. In fact, just the opposite. Father Jerry, canonically, is such a decision licit, depriving a cardinal of his residence and his pension, uh, simply for disagreeing with the pope on matters of doctrine or uh, the way in which the, the, the faith is being explained to the populace? I think there's a serious canonical question here of equity and justice, because um, what Cardinal Burke lost, the two things, one is his pension, essentially his retirement benefit, in view of the years of service that he gave to the Holy See in his capacity as a cardinal. So to take away someone's pension uh, is a serious matter, because a pension is not a privilege or a favor. It's owed injustice. In fact, it's what we call deferred compensation. So the Holy See, instead of paying, you know, X amount plus whatever the pension payment would be, waits until the person retires, just pays them X, and then starts giving the pension after they've retired. So that's wrong. Now, as regards the uh, housing, this, again, is a form of compensation. Uh, the Pope, earlier this year, changed the rules about charging market rates for uh, Vatican City-owned apartments. And I was troubled at the time because... Uh, you can ask a cardinal to pay market rates if you pay him a market salary. So if the cardinal is going to right. receive, you know, let's say he would receive the salary that, you know, executive vice presidents receive in the corporate world, of course he can go out and pay for his apartment at market rates. But that's the church isn't a corporation, and the cardinal is a servant of God. So we basically say, we'll give you X amount, we'll provide you with subsidized housing, and then we'll give you a pension because no one expects when a cardinal retires that he won't have some money in the bank. Uh, I think Cardinal Burke has been treated unfairly. Uh, I regret to say that because um, 
you know, the, the cardinal and the pope obviously have some disagreements. But as you say, a disagreement mm -hmm. here is not a cause for punishment. It shouldn't be. I think the pope has made a mistake. Right. I hope we'll re reconsider. And, you know, I, I, I follow Cardinal Burke's career. Uh, he's a wonderful bishop. He's saying nothing now that he never—they said the same things under John Paul II and Benedict. He's defending yeah. Catholic teaching. And as we know, mm -hmm. <laughs> there are plenty of cardinals who don't defend Catholic teaching, and they're given favor. So uh, the people of God are yeah. seriously concerned about this. Well, you, you make such a great point. The church property, Father, and we've heard this again and again from the Pope, that we're the people of God and the church belongs to all of us and everyone is welcome. Well, that property, that apartment that, that right across from, from St. Peter's, that belongs to us, too. And when you're saying, but we're going to charge market value for it, well, who's going to be occupying that apartment? And does this rule now apply to all curial cardinals? Are you telling me the new uh, head of the doctrine of faith and the new uh, Cardinal Farrell and all of these cardinals, they're going to get no payment, no pension, no income, and they're going to be charged market rate for their Vatican apartments? I don't think so. I don't think this is an equal application of the rule. And some have said, well, the pope is now just explaining uh, the, the new rule in Rome. Well, then apply it to everybody. But I, I agree with you. I think it's silly to charge market rate. These men aren't making market rates in their income. I'll give you the last word on this. Yeah, no, and, and you know, let's look at this. I'm a Catholic priest. I run a parish. Um, you know, the salary is quite low compared to what was conceivable, uh, you know, if you look at what teachers and administrators get in different fields. Mm -hmm. But I don't, I don't mind because I signed on for this. Cardinal Burke, same thing. I signed on for this. Don't take away my pension when I turn 75 because you're upset about a few things I say. Uh, you know, if that was the policy, then we would basically have to line a lot of people up in the Vatican and ask them, do you agree with Cardinal Burke or not? And say, well, sorry, if you agree with him, you've got to leave your apartment. No, we don't do this. This is... No, I hope the Pope will reconsider because, you know, Cardinal Burke almost died when he got COVID. This is no way to treat yes. him now that he's in retirement. I think this is a big mistake. Yeah. Uh, Father Jerry, I want to get your take on something Pope Francis said about evangelization and the liturgy at his Wednesday general audience. He said this, creativity to proclaim Jesus with joy to everyone and today in this age of ours, which does not help us have a religious outlook on life and in which the proclamation has become in various places more difficult, arduous, apparently fruitless, the temptation to desist from pastoral service may arise. Perhaps one takes refuge in safety zones like the habitual repetition of things one always does or in the alluring calls of an intimist spirituality, or even in a misunderstood sense of the centrality of the liturgy, they are temptations that disguise themselves as fidelity to tradition. But often, rather than responses to the spirit, they are reactions to personal dissatisfactions. So, Father, um, that's a little hard to make sense of all of that because it, it, you know, it bounces around in the language I think is hard for people to process. But uh, I, the, the Pope is saying evangelization is hampered by this misunderstood sense of the centrality of the liturgy and repeating what we've heard before. First of all, what was your take on that? And I thought the liturgy was central to the exercise of faith. <clears throat> well, there are a few things there. 
Uh, the Pope refers to personal dissatisfactions as the reason people take refuge in liturgy. Now, wait a minute. Are you saying that people are maladjusted and malcontents and disturbed uh, or unstable, and therefore they look for stability in a, in a timeless liturgy? Uh, I wouldn't go there, Holy Father, because that's, that's imputing to them things that can't possibly be known, and in my experience is not the case. The centrality of the liturgy, by the way, you know, I think we have to remember, what is the liturgy? It's an act of worship. So the worship of mm -hmm. God is the first commandment. I am the Lord your God, you have no other God besides me. We have to worship God, and then we do the works of charity, then we do the educational part, uh, then we receive the sacraments. But if we don't worship God, now I think what the Pope is getting at, which we know is something he doesn't like, is the Latin liturgy. And that he's viewed, mm -hmm. he said before that people who do that are backwardists and nostalgics who like to, you know, find peace and security, et cetera, in the old liturgy. Again, I'd say, mm -hmm. Holy Father, please have a little comprehension for the fact that people who like Gregorian chant, Latin mass, beautiful churches, investments, they're as real as you and I are. They have a spirituality which is nourished, which nourished the lives of the life of the church right up until the Second Vatican Council. Uh, it's not all that bad. It's a great thing, in fact. So, yeah. I, you know, evangelization means spreading the gospel, means bringing souls to Christ, administering the sacraments. What do we teach the people we're trying to uh, evangelize? To come and worship the Lord at Mass. So that really has to be, you know, the source and summit. The Eucharist is the source and summit of the church, but the Eucharist is only brought to us in a ritual, and the ritual is sacred, and the ritual gives us education and inspiration. So I don't find that this is a, you know, a psychological dodge by saying, I like the liturgy, I'm not going to do anything else. No, it's, it's what propels us outward. Yeah. Well, th th this is all we have to say, Father, just to put this in context for people. And we've been hearing this narrative for a number of years now. There are those around the Pope, within his, his circle, and I'm talking about Father Spadaro and, and Austin Ivory. Uh, they have put forth this idea that the liturgy, the old rite, the Roman rite, the traditional Latin mass, as it's commonly known, is somehow a, an act of rebellion against Vatican II and Pope Francis. And frankly, nothing could be further from the truth. Those things were here before Vatican II and Pope Francis. They'll be here after Vatican II and Pope Francis. I think it's just a preferred style of worship for some people. And they, they like the sacrality and the silence and the beauty of the, of the Gregorian chant. But they've, they've tried to cast this in this new narrative as a political act. And, well, now there's a related story. In Brazil, a Brazilian priest is facing canonical proceedings after being accused of making schismatic statements and failing to follow the restrictions on the use of the TLM. Father Fabio Fernandes is even being forbidden from public ministry. Uh, in a November 23rd decree, uh, he was, he's forbidden from saying Mass at all. Your thoughts on this idea, Father, and it's been, it's been years in the making, that this old mass is somehow, um, when, when Pope Benedict went away, suddenly the mass became this act of political defiance against Vatican II and the current pope. Again, I think you're correct. It's, uh, to love the old mass is not to disregard the Second Vatican Council. What it is, what it, the old mass, or the traditional Latin mass, however you want to say it, was the mass celebrated all throughout the council. Now, the council authorized revisions, updating, 
uh, things. And basically, the judgment that was made by people like the old masses, it wasn't the council that was wrong. It was the implementation of the council that was wrong. And that because the council mm -hmm. didn't rewrite the, man, the missile, you know, that was done subsequently right. by a group called the Concilium. And it was very controversial because there were some radical elements uh, who were involved in that. And, um, you know, we've had reforms uh, of the new missile. Pope Benedict made some reforms. Uh, and the idea that the old mass is somehow a threat because you can contrast and compare between the new and the old missile, Pope Benedict's idea was mutual enrichment. And I would be very happy if we sat down again and said, OK, let's go back, take the old you know, missile from 1962, and let's see what the council actually intended, and then revise it accordingly. You know, there was a transitional uh, missile that was issued, in, I believe, in 1965, in which there were elements of the old mass Latin and English. A few things were changed, but it was essentially the old missile. That was very successful. I, I thought it was good. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, people who like to latch on to a category of people and say to that, say they're political opponents and therefore we don't legitimize any of their uh, points of view, no, that's selling them short. They are believing Catholics who are looking for peace with God and their fellow man, and they don't like being called nostalgics or backwardists because they value what, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the saints and uh, the people of God valued for, you know, so many centuries. Yeah, well, and, and, it, and it, it seems that they're backfilling with this narrative to justify contemporaneous actions, mainly the removal of bishops and cardinals in some cases, because they like or celebrate the old mass, which, if you believe what Bishop Strickland said, that was part of the reason for his dismissal, that he didn't outlaw the old mass in his diocese. But I thought bishops were, I thought we were, we were into uh, conciliar uh, uh, outreach. I thought the bishop was being given more power, particularly under this pontificate. Apparently, that's not the case. As I mentioned earlier, the so-called German synodal way is making headlines again this week. Bishop Stefan Oster uh, described the German bishops as deeply divided, saying a divided episcopacy is, quote, obviously a disaster for the faithful in Germany, end quote. Bishop Oster and three other German bishops boycotted a November meeting of the Synodal Way in protest. Now, Oster said his decision, Father, uh, to boycott was an attempt at maintaining unity with Rome. What do you make of the bishops' warning of potential schism should the German church follow this synodal path? Yeah, this is a very serious question, Raymond. I, I admire what Bishop Oster has said. Uh, let's recall that this German synodal way is basically a Protestantization of the church. They're trying to have lay people and bishops have equal power in the governance of the church. They want to have a, a synodal mm. committee. Now, the Holy See has said you can't do that. In fact, Pope Francis recently wrote a letter to four German, German uh, women who had been on the synodal way, who quit because they saw where it was going. And the Pope said he shares yeah. their concerns. And he said he had forbidden the forming of this synodal committee uh, back uh, last year, I guess it was in February, or February of this year. The problem is, if the Pope said don't do it in February, and then you have your meeting here in October and November, why are you doing it? Uh, they were also right. told uh, by Cardinal Paroline not to promote anti-Catholic doctrines about homosexuality. And, uh, and, mm -hmm. and, and what do we have in the priesthood? What? They're doing it. They're trying to do it. So, yeah, the Holy See has to stop sending letters, and they have to summon the bishops. You know, the Pope recently summoned all the bishops of Spain to Rome 
to give them advice and listen to them about Spanish seminary life. Well, this is a much more important thing. And I think the Pope should call them in and say, look, I told you not to form the Synodal Committee. If, you don't, if you're not willing to agree to go along with what I said, then we're going to have to initiate canonical procedure to have you removed. Because what you're doing is Protestantizing the church. The people of God mm. is a hierarchical institution established by God. The shepherds can't turn to the sheep and say, you're equal to me now. Tell me how to run my diocese. Tell me who I should ordain a priest. Tell me who I should send into mm -hmm. the pastoral ministry. That, doesn't, that shouldn't happen. That can happen. That happens in Protestantism. Yeah. That's not what we want in the Catholic Church. Well, but, but, but Father, this, and this is why I think so many Catholics are alarmed, um, frankly anxious right now. And I see the mail. I mean, I wish I could. One, one show, I think I'm just going to read my email out from viewers because it's heartbreaking. It's terrifying in some cases. But they are so confused and upset that you have the Vatican weighing in with absolute clarity and saying, you, Bishop so-and-so, or you, Cardinal so-and-so, you are finished, you are out because you've disagreed or issued some uh, uh, difference of opinion with the prevailing thought in these walls. You're out. Go out to the outer darkness. We never want to hear you again. Now you can't even say mass. On the other hand, you've got a group of bishops deliberately moving forward and saying, we are changing church teaching and doctrine. We are going to challenge the authority of the Pope himself. And nothing is done. We send letters and beg them to be nice. This is the, the, this is the disconnect or the incoherence of action that I think has so frustrated and hurt Catholics. Um, before I go on, I'll let you comment on that. No, I, you're right. And you know, let, let's get down to brass tacks with these German bishops. Uh, they don't care about Catholic teaching except for those four, because they're, or, they're, they're obviously disregarding obedience to the Pope on a matter when the Pope tells them what to do as mm -hmm. regards don't enter into a heretical process. And then secondly, why in the world would you ever think that Jesus Christ, when he told the apostles, you know, to, to tend to care for the flock, that he meant that the flock was also supposed to be in that group running the church. This is, this is impossible. Right. We're not the, the Episcopal mm. Church has, a, has a meetings periodically, and they have what they call the House of the Laity, and they get to vote on things. This is wrong. This is not how the church is organized. Do, are lay people mm. deprived because they're not bishops? No. The greatest gift in the world is Jesus Christ received in the sacrament of Holy Eucharist once you're baptized. Anything else is, is a ministry and service to the others. So the fact that, you know, mm. lay people aren't bishops, that's not a problem. What's a problem is bishops who don't want to be bishops and then say, well, lay people have to share my authority. You can't do that in the Catholic Church. It is not a do-it-yourself no. religion. And I'm afraid that's what the Germans mm. are talking about. Yeah. Cardinal Robert Sarah spoke out this week against what he called, Father, the destruction of the Mass in the West and the dilution of Catholic worship, inculturation in Africa and Asia particularly. He said this, we are witnessing today, especially in the West, a dismantling of the values of faith and piety and the destruction of the forms of the Mass. We work to sprinkle the liturgy with African and Asian elements, thus distorting the Paschal mystery that we celebrate. We place so much emphasis on these cultural elements that our celebrations sometimes last six hours. Our liturgies are often too banal and too noisy, too African and less Christian. 
Cardinal Sarah is often mentioned as a favorite, by the way, in the next conclave. What do you make of his words here? And are we beginning to see indications of the pendulum swinging away from uh, the, the vision of the liturgy we've heard in recent years? Well, Cardinal Sarah is correct and he's courageous. And that's one reason I love this man so much. Uh, he's written some wonderful books and he is not afraid to stand in front of a microphone and tell people things they might not want to hear. You know, he's, he's an African who understands that, you know, making a mass extra long because you add non-Christian elements and, you, you know, you make it into a self-expression of human gifts, you know, through dances and endless songs and elements that are not found in the, in the Missal, that this is wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, the great temptation that Pope Benedict, and, and when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, wrote about it frequently, was the temptation of self-worship that we go to church in order to celebrate our gifts. Uh, that's a very secondary reason you go to church. You go to, give, you go to church to worship God, to beg pardon for sin, and, and aid to live a virtuous and holy life. Now, the gifts that we mm -hmm. receive, we're thankful for, but we don't ascribe them to ourselves. And by the way, when, when Christianity came into the world, all the world was pagan except for the Jews. Christianity developed out of Judaism, and then we went out and we suppressed pagan errors. We shouldn't induce, introduce those errors into, uh, into the church. And how much, uh, you know, I was a pastor in Manhattan. I dealt with various different people. Superstition is always lurking under the surface of a lot of things that people are interested in. And they can be from the modern, you know, the, the modern age, former ages, first world, third world. We have to make sure that we don't allow superstitions and human interest to adulterate our worship. Cardinal Sarah is absolutely right. And, you know, I have to say, Cardinal Sarah is extremely popular among Africans precisely because they recognize what he's saying is true. Right. The clarity of his of his teaching. Uh, Father Jerry Murray, we will leave it there. You can find commentary by Father Jerry at thecatholicthing.org. Father Jerry, Merry Christmas. We'll see you soon. My next guest is a composer, arranger, conductor, and producer. His orchestrations have been featured in some amazing blockbusters, The Greatest Showman, The Lion King, The Dark Knight, so many others. He's also worked extensively in big band jazz as well as classical music. His compositions and arrangements have been featured by over 80 symphony orchestras all over the world. He's done orchestrations for 120 movies and worked with legendary Hollywood film composers like John Debney and Hans Zimmer. Not only that, his work can be found on a recent hit record, a Christmas album that's been on the Billboard charts for a few weeks. Hmm, what could that be? Joining me now, Hollywood composer, conductor, and arranger of my new album, Christmas Merry and Bright, Kevin Koska. Kevin, thanks for being here. Uh, before we get to the arrangements that you did for, for Mary and Bright, I want to talk a little bit about your background. You grew up in Seattle. Um, you were raised Catholic. Tell me a little bit about your experience growing up and how did you discover music and your talent for it? Did you come from a musical family? Yes, I am the youngest of six kids, and all of us played piano, violin, and my parents were both musicians as well. And so everyone was, wow. you know, I was the youngest. Everyone was playing some instrument. By the time I was in kindergarten or first grade, I went to the piano, and I just assumed that I could just read the music and play what was there. So I had to go. My dad was in the garage building something, and I went and brought the music and said, what is this? How, how do we play it? You know, how does this work? And then went and set out the piano, and he'd show me some stuff. And suddenly a week or two later, I was enrolled in piano lessons. And then 
studied mm. ever since kindergarten. Wow. Now, now you've said also, I read in interviews, that your family were mass goers every week and that your father was really the anchor of the family. How did that faith and your faith influence and inform not only the music but the arrangements you now create? Do they have an influence? Uh, it totally has an influence because when you're raised uh, in a Catholic family, obviously you're going to Mass every week and the music is a big part of it. And religion is a huge mm. part. You know, music and religion practically go together. And it's mentioned in the Bible hundreds of times. And, mm -hmm. you know, all of, the com all of the major composers wrote Masses, you know, even Requiems and tremendous amount of music was written. You know, Bach, all of his music was practically written for the church. And so growing up Catholic, right. you know, it's just something that's in your... It's, it's within the faith, and, you know, you go, and, you, and as the Greeks said, to sing is to pray twice. You know, so music has always been there, and I've been studying it. And eventually, when I was in junior high, I met a very famous arranger by the name of Vic Schoen. He did all the arrangements for the Andrews yeah. Sisters. And I studied with him for two and a half years, and I learned a tremendous amount from him. Oh. And I was his only student, and he, but he, he did movies for Bing Crosby and Bob Hope and Danny Kay, you know the remember the court jester. He he oh, did yeah, that score. Movie. Yeah, yeah, he did wow. all. Of, well, he did the he whole also, thing. He he was also Irving Berlin's uh, arranger, which we should say. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, tell me how you came to meet Vic Schoen. I mean, you sought him out. He moved to Seattle, right, to your hometown. Yeah, he moved there after a while. Of I think he got tired of L.A. and eventually just moved up there, and then he he. People sought him out up there. He did arrangements for everybody up there as well. And my mother met him through friends. And my son wants to be a composer. And like, oh, great. You know, and I'm 14 years old or whatever. And, and I met with him. And I didn't know anything about him. I remember going into his studio. And he had pictures of Bing Crosby and Bob Hope. And I have those photos. I always wanted them years later. And I saw all of his albums up on the wall, and it was so impressive. And he, he knew everybody. He did all of Patti Page's arrangements. There was a show mm. in the 50s called The Hit Record. He was the music director for that because there was, yeah. you know, Jack Parr. He did those shows. And, you know, but he, wow. he, he, he would always say, I, I've done everything there is to do in, music, in the music business. And so and he told, it, it not only just learning harmony from him and orchestration, I also learned a lot about how he talked with singers and just the stories he just he, he tried to teach buddy rich once how to read music <laughs> the and the andrews sisters they needed a new drummer and then it was in new york and he, they you should try out this new drummer named buddy oh buddy okay bring wow. him in then they they tried they had a uh, you know rehearsal and the guy couldn't read music You're like oh uh he, afterwards he tried to sit down with him and the guy ran out of the room he didn't want to learn music buddy rich never wow. learned to read music the rest of his life so he, he just told me a isn't that million amazing? stories yeah it's just i've learned so much from him yeah what were the one or two big takeaways that you carry with you as you enter into new work that vic Schoen taught you he always said know who you're writing for because you could mm -hmm. just generically write music and then what's going to happen with it. But if someone commissions you and someone comes to you, like a certain singer with a Christmas big band album, you have to know who you're writing for. And he said, because yeah. you could start writing for yourself or something that impresses you or something you may not like, but 
the people that are hiring you may not want that. It all depends on mm-hmm. who, who's hiring you, who are the musicians you're writing for, the level that you're yeah. writing for, the, what is, you know, when they put, when you put the record on, people are going to listen to it, or are they going to like this? And, you know, and there's a big yeah. difference in music. Would you rather be impressed with something or would you rather be moved by something? And mm. so a huge part of the business, a lot of people write music that seems to, I, I'm going to impress them, but I would rather be moved yeah. by something than impressed with that. And he yeah. taught me these things where know who you're writing for. Know, know what the commission yeah. is. What is it that they want? Beautiful. No, no, that's a, that, that's so, and that's so key because everything, so much of music today, Kevin, is impersonal. And one of the things, look, you came in, onto my radar via my producer, uh, our friend Monica, um, uh, and, and she suggested you for the Marion Bright album. And of course, I knew your work, but she knew you through John Williams. How did you get to work with Williams? What was that? <laughs> how, how was that connection made? Right after I graduated from Berklee College of Music in Boston, I was asked to write some arrangements for a very small group, and they rehearsed at Symphony Hall Boston. And the assistant conductor of the Boston Pops, his name is Ronald Feldman, was involved with this project, which was just this small little thing that was happening. And I talked with him after the rehearsal. We just kept talking, standing outside Symphony Hall. And more he talked with me, he was impressed with my knowledge of music. So then he said, maybe you'd be interested in doing some arrangements for one of my concerts. So he ended up commissioning me to write like a bossa nova medley. And then I ended up, huh. he wanted to see if it was any good. So he, we had a meeting with John Williams and we sat there and John just sat there and looked <laughs> at it, turning the pages, could hear everything in his head. And if something, mm-hmm. oh, you might want to change that one little thing right there, turn the page. And he, he could hear the whole thing in his head. And it was just interesting wow. watching the master. And I was 21 years old when I got that commission. And I mm. got introduced well, there, and I was able to arrange for them. And then a couple of years later, then John Williams asked me to do something for him. And it was just a joy to be able to sit back in the green room of Symphony Hall, where Arthur Fiedler sat and everyone, Leonard yeah. Bernstein, everyone sat in there and just sitting there talking about music. And he would t- tell, you know, tell me stories about Benny Hermann and just the joy of, mm. of talking with him in, in, in that environment. It was such an honor to be there. And I miss those days, too, because that was yeah. 25 years ago. I want to talk to you, Kevin, about the arrangements you did for, for my Christmas Mary and Bright album. Um, and I have to tell you, I had a ball recording it with the band in New Orleans, and we just had a performance over the weekend in Dallas. It's such a joy to sing these arrangements. I think they're even better live. But one of the saxophonists, the guy who's been playing for like 35 or 40 years, I remember when he first opened the arrangement to deck the halls, and you sent all the music in a big box. And he opened it up, and he smiled, and he looked down the line, and he said, these are old school. Where did you get this stuff? <laughs> Was that intentional, <laughs> Kevin? And, and, what, and he, he meant the highest compliment by that. He said, these, this is old school. Well, you know... I've been taught to do things in a certain way. When you, when you study with the people that I've studied with and you get involved in the boss and pops, there's a standard. It's, it's the standard of how things are done, the way the parts look, the orchestrations, the way you put the, everything together. So when you're recording with a band, everything's got to be done smoothly because it's, it's all time and money. You book musicians for a certain amount of time. You don't have them for two weeks. You have them for six hours a day for two days and that adds up it's just like the same thing with a film 
there's pre-production, production, and post-production. You, you burn up most of your money in production, but that's why they only, it takes a month to make a movie where you could be in pre-production for two years or 10 years. But with a, with a recording session, you only have two days and that's where you spend most of your money and you want to get the best musicians possible. And when everything is, you know, when everything is done in the music first where it's clear, it makes sense, and everything is readable, it makes it very smooth. And when the musicians enjoy good music and the parts are great, this, they, they, they st stand taller in their seats. And it makes the session yeah. go smoother. They enjoy it more. Well, and, and, and what I love about it is there's a complexity to it for the, for the musicians. But for the listener, it's this rich, full experience. And I just love the sound of a big band. And so when I first heard the arrangements played full out, it just, you know, it takes your breath away when you hear particularly a new arrangement. And, you know, the, the note I've gotten, Kevin, from so many people all over the country who've gotten uh, Marion Bright, they, the, the, and it's a consistent note. I also heard it in Dallas. They said this feels like it's been around forever, but it's entirely new. And that's such a that's really a testament to your to your beautiful arrangements and all of us trying to, you know, fit in and accommodate. I want to give people a little taste of the album. Just listen to this. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to The particular arrangements I love are Jingle Bells and that Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Kevin. Give me a sense. When we talked before you, you had arranged anything, um, we discussed that backstory, and I, I'd sent you some of my research on the backstory of Jingle Bells, but the arrangement you sent, there are, there, you can see the pictures musically as you listen to it. They're simply incredible. How do you prepare to create an arrangement like that? Well, every commission is different, and it's funny, Monica, our friend and producer, she sent me a list, like a three-page list that I think you created, where you yeah. added all these, <laughs> all these, you described how you wanted, it's funny, I read them, and it's like, it, and you're describing like a, I can't even put into words the descriptions you use, because it was it puts a smile on my face, and I'm like, and you're the, the 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 warmth of the the happiness of the the moment, and I want to have this serene, beautiful. And, and, yeah. and I'm trying. I'm looking at these words, and I'm trying to translate. You have to think, what's he looking for here? What is this? Right. What is this about? How do we create this in a picture? And I remember listening to an interview with Nelson Riddle because everyone always asks about Nelson mm. Riddle and Frank Sinatra, because that was one of the greatest collaborations ever, because those arrangements are timeless. And you bet. Nelson, Nelson had mentioned that Sinatra used the word cinematic. He said, when you arrange mm. these pieces, because the, Nelson's intros were completely original, and yeah. Sinatra wanted him to, to paint a picture of the song. So you look at the lyrics, what is the song about? And the intros almost have this... It's, it's almost like a cinematic version of what this is about before the song begins. And Nelson right. had pointed out that that a lot of times old, like, average arrangers would echo a part of the song or the la like the sixth, seventh, eighth bar. They'd echo that, and then they go, but um bum right. bum bum and the singer would come in. But you're giving away the song. And said, and Nelson said, I don't, you know, the singers don't like that. They want you have an original song, 
and then Sinatra comes in mm -hmm. with the melody, then everybody applauds, like, oh, I know that song, but you don't want them applauding during the intro. Well, Kevin, your intro to every one of these songs is original and beautiful. Uh, the, the jingle bells, there's a kind of propulsive energy. You can literally, I mean, you said it a moment ago, you're painting pictures, but you can see the guy getting on the sleigh and the sleigh taking off in the intro of that song, you know, and beating, hitting the horse as you go. I mean, it's all there before anybody opens their mouth. Uh, and the Hark the Herald Angels Sing, I tell everybody in my intro now when I do it live, Look out for low-flying angels, because there's this swooping energy in the arrangement that is so grand and powerful and strong. I mean, it's such a compliment to this music, and to my mind, it reanimates it and gets people to sit up and notice lyrics they never heard before. So you're really serving the, the, the song itself and its communication. I'll give you the last word on, on why, why, why this is a lost art orchestration and arrangement and the delicacy and the time taken to create those arrangements. Arranging and orchestration go hand in hand and some people don't know the difference and I remember reading years ago that the difference between between all three composition, arranging and orchestration is that composition is like let's say over here, orchestrations over here and arranging is mm -hmm. somewhere in the middle where you're kind of doing a little bit of both because somebody somebody created the song first. Irving Berlin wrote the song, so you're taking his melody, but you have to kind of arrange around it and do all these, fill in these things, but you're also it's a little bit of co-composing at the same time. And arranging kind of sort of came around with maybe Stephen Foster when you had these songwriters in the late yep. 1800s writing stuff, but they couldn't really write it for a full orchestra. They could just write the melody. Yeah. And so that's where the arranger was born. And from one arranger to the next, it's, that's why Christmas music is an amazing example. There's only about 40 to 50 famous Christmas songs that everyone knows. I mean, there's mm -hmm. thousands, but there's basically 50 that everyone knows. And those are arranged right. every year and by different arrangers. That's why Buddy Rich's version of Jingle Bells is going to be very different than the Boston Pops versus Faith Hill versus Metallica. If they're, right. they're, all, all four yeah. of them are going to do a completely <laughs> different version of it. Because it has to do with their yeah. identity, and, and an arranger has to know, if they hire somebody, then you have to know who you're writing for, as we mentioned earlier, and how mm -hmm. it's going to you know, help. that The version is so important to what you're writing for, the, the orchestra, the singer, whoever you're you know, doing the arrangement for. It has to have something to do with their identity as well, and that's why mm -hmm. you know, getting this commission with you, it's like... What is what is this going to be about? How can I make it exciting? I got to admit, you sounded great on it. it I've listened to him like, wow, you know, it, it it's you. you make it exciting and fun, and you know that style. It it really is a joy to listen to because you you give so much life to it. Well, Kevin Koska, I am so delighted and honored that you were the arranger and orchestrator on on this album, and and that you know you arrange these songs for me. They made them so beautiful. It was like putting on a well made coat. And they, it just fit. I mean, the first time it was played out, I said, Mike, these are the most beautiful arrangements. So thank you. It's a joy singing them. I hope we get to do it again. And uh, Kevin, you can see his amazing work. Go to kevinkoska.com for more of uh, his incredible uh, legacy of work. And uh, the breadth of what, what Kevin does is, is uh, mind-blowing. Kevin Koska, thank you for being here. Thank you so much.
And as we were discussing, my new CD, Christmas, Merry and Bright, still remains the number one jazz release on Amazon. I love that it's making your spirits bright. You can get your copy at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple Music, Spotify, the EWTN catalog, wherever you get your music. And I hope you'll come see me on the remaining dates of the concert tour. It's been unbelievable being on the road with so many friends. I mean, it's like a family reunion. Friday, December 15th, I'll be in Cleveland with the great Frankie Avalon and the grand finale at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville. Thursday, December 21st, I'll be joined by the legend, Jose Feliciano. And we had such a great time in Dallas. Uh, and we have some surprise guests. You don't want to miss this. Go to RaymondArroyoChristmas.com for links to tickets and much more. Please tell your family and friends, come see us. It will make your Christmas merry and bright, I promise. Finally, in dark times such as these, it's refreshing and I think necessary to remind ourselves of the excitement and joy of new life. My next guest has done just that in her brand new picture book, celebrating those moments families experience when welcoming a new life into their world. And how to explain what's happening to those little ones who will soon have a new baby brother or sister in their homes. Please welcome the author of Little Spark of Life, a celebration of born and pre-born human life, Courtney Sebring. Courtney, thanks for being here. What was the inspiration for Little Spark of Life? T tell us what was your process of writing it and what sparked your spark of life? Absolutely. I'd love to. Um, Little Spark of Life is really where a lot of different passions meet, both my own and my daughter's. She was a huge influence in the writing of this book. Um, so you could say that she was obsessed, deeply interested in all things pregnancy and childbirth from about the age of three to six. And so just by virtue of being around that all the time, the art that she made, the dramatic play, that was a huge influence mm -hmm. on the book. And in the middle of all this, when she was around four years old, my husband and I became really interested in learning more about the pro-life movement. And that was when I first began to write the poem, Little Spark of Life, that eventually became the book. So it's it's really a combination mm. of my daughter's awe and wonder on the subject of new life and everything that I personally was learning about pro-life apologetics at the time. You know, it was it was really important mm. to me to not only create a book that spoke to the science behind the question, where do babies come from, but also to include specific truths that are honestly under attack right now in our culture. Mm. Little Spark of Life really piques uh, the curiosity, I think, of kids who may be mm -hmm. expecting a little brother or sister. You take readers from the little spark that grows week by week and month by month into a one-of-a-kind human life in a wondrous and informative way. What have readers said about the book, especially on how kids react to it, I wonder? Um, I've had some really great responses. One of my favorites is it highlights just that the the imagination behind it, uh, that the book is written in a way where kids can really understand this thing that is so hard to understand that it's hidden from view, which is one of the lines in the book. The mother yeah. speaking in the book says, you know, your imagination so wild will will be able to see what's hidden from view my sweet child, as I explain it to you. Mm. Mm -hmm. the, the, the sanctity of life, you mentioned this a second ago, that's often forgotten mm -hmm. in our culture. How mm -hmm. does your little spark of life try to change that situation? I mean, what is, what's different in your approach with, with this book? Yeah, great question. Um, 
Well, when I think about how Little Spark of Life is supporting the pro-life message, I immediately think of the long term. You know, I think about the kids who are going to hear their parents or caregivers or teachers read this book to them. Um, and hopefully other books that uplift goodness, beauty, and truth, but specifically the pro-life message. Because I, I firmly believe that our imaginations have a lot to do with shaping our values. You know, scripture tells us that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks and our actions follow. So um, like yeah. I said, that there there are specific pro-life apologetics that I that I took on in this book, for example, two separate bodies in one single place. What an intricate plan for the whole human race, um, specifically saying, mm. you know, on a level where kids can understand, I want it to get into their brain so that in the future, when they come across my body, my choice, they'll say, wait a second, that's not what I learned. It's two separate bodies in one single place or every babe hoped for mm. or unplanned surprise holds the same worth from the first cell divide that it doesn't matter what the person's story is or the, the circumstances, that from the moment of conception, that baby has dignity, value, and worth. Hmm. Now, tell me about this Light the Spark campaign. What is that? You all are offering the, the book to particular buyers, but how does that work? Absolutely. Um, so the Light the Spark campaign is happening right now. Um, Paraclete Press is offering 40% off 40 books right now, uh, which I believe is a case of books. We really want to get Little Spark of Life um, to as many children, to as many future culture makers as possible. So we encourage people to um, purchase a case and donate it to a pregnancy care center or a church or a school. So people can mm. find more information about that on Paraclete Press's website or the book's landing page, which is littlesparkoflifebook.com. Uh, what's your next project, Courtney? What are you working on now? Um, well, uh, the next project is a book called Every Body Wonderfully Made, which affirms for children the beauty and goodness of being boy or girl. It's a resource for parents, but it's really just a fun book for kids that encourages them that their bodies are inextricably linked to their personhood. Um, so building off the message of Little Spark of Life, that every life is valuable, everybody wonderfully made, takes it a step further and roots life and personhood in the body, male or female, and calls it good, um, that God doesn't make mistakes. Mm. Little Spark of Life, a celebration of born and pre-born human life by Courtney Sebring is available now in bookstores everywhere and online, including at the EWTN catalog. Courtney, thank you for being here. Thanks so much, Raymond. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to join us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now. 